Take your Bible, if you will, and find your place with me at the Gospel of John, chapter 4. And in just a few minutes, we're going to read beginning in uh, verse 19 down uh, to verse 26. I want to begin a new series of messages today entitled Seven Habits of Deeply Spiritual People. Now, I can tell you that it's going to take us more than seven weeks because, for instance, today's message is broken over two weeks because the subject matter just is something so vitally important that we don't want to pass it by too quickly. But over the course of these next several weeks, we'll be looking at seven habits of deeply spiritual people. Uh, These are all things that if you know someone who is walking with God, somebody who has a close relationship to God, somebody who uh, you believe and looked up to as someone who is mature in the faith, I promise you, you will find these seven habits uh, in their lives being practiced. And I'm hoping to encourage all of us to to become the kind of people who practice these matters in each of our lives so that all of us can become deeply uh, spiritual people. Uh, Follow with me, if you will, uh, beginning in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Of course, this is the Samaritan woman, and she's speaking to Jesus who has engaged her in this conversation. Verse 20, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who's called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray together. Father, I ask now that as we begin something new for these next few weeks and we look at what it means to walk with you, what it means to have a a deep relationship with you, what it means to enjoy fellowship with you, Lord, these are things that every one of us should be incorporating into our lives. These aren't hard to do in the sense that they're difficult disciplines, but These are things that are hard to do because Satan will fight us at every turn to keep us away from these things because if he cannot damn our souls, he wants to destroy our fellowship with God. But I pray, Lord, that there'll be many watching, many that will be joining us, and that they will recognize that the relationship they have with Jesus, the relationship they have with God through the Lord Jesus is something that he wants to to enrich, to grow deeper and stronger. And these seven habits will be absolutely essential if that's to happen. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you don't know this story, let me take just a brief moment and refresh your mind about what's going on here. Jesus is traveling from Judea to Galilee. Judea is down in the south. It's down where Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem is located. 
and he's going to Galilee. Now, actually, he's going down in elevation, but he's going up in direction. He's going north as he's moving. But to go from Judea to Galilee, you had to go through a territory called Samaria. If you know anything about the history of the Jews, there was animosity that existed between the Samaritans and the Jews. Not unlike what you see in Israel today between the Palestinians and the Jews. There's animosity that existed between the Samaritans and the Jews. They did not like each other. There were many occasions when Jews going to Galilee would literally go completely around Samaria, go down to the Jordan River, cross over the Jordan River, go north, and then cross back over the Jordan River just in order to avoid going through uh, the territory of Samaria. But what's interesting about this particular story that we didn't read today, but you should know, is that Jesus said he's got to go through the city of Samaria through the territory, excuse me, of Samaria. He says, I must needs go through Samaria. In other words, Jesus knew that there was going to be a divine encounter between him and a woman, a Samaritan woman, at a well called Jacob's Well. Isn't it fascinating that Jacob's Well that was dug some 1,800 years earlier when Jacob purchased the piece of property where his tent had been pitched and had to have water to be able to sustain life, 1,800 years later, here in John chapter 4, that well is still producing water. And today, if you're to go to Israel and you were to go to Jacob's well, you would find that they have built over the well a Greek Orthodox church, and that well is still there to this day. That's a fascinating historical detail. But when Jesus sits down at the well, his disciples go into the city of Sychar, just a short distance away from where where the well is located, and their purpose is to buy food. And they're traveling. They need something to eat. It's the heat of the day. They need to rest for a few minutes. And Jesus sits down at the well, and he waits while his disciples go into Sychar. The woman comes out, and as she comes out, Jesus engages her in conversation She came out at noontime. Some people say 6 p.m., depending on whether you determine time by the Roman means of time or by the Greek means, by the Jewish means of time. Probably it was noontime because she comes out alone. That wouldn't have been a normal thing for women to do. They normally came out together to draw water, and they were encouraging to one another as they were getting water for their families. But whatever the time, she comes out alone, and she encounters Jesus Christ who is sitting here at this well. And Jesus engages her in a conversation. Scandalous. Absolutely scandalous. Uh, Jewish men, first of all, didn't want to have anything to do with Samaritans most of the time. And second of all, to talk to a woman in public was just unheard of. But Jesus uh, values women, raises the level and respect of women. And Jesus speaks to this woman who's come out to draw water. And he draws her into a conversation about water. And she's out there to get water out of this well. It's going to take time to lower the buckets down, raise them up, put them into whatever she has to carry back to where she lives. And you, you can imagine when Jesus says, I can give you living water and you'll never thirst again. That had to sound pretty good to her, don't you think? I mean, if you're going out every day getting water from this well in the heat of the day and 
it's really hot and it's not comfortable and you're all alone. I mean, to think that I could have living water, never have to come back to this well. So she enters into this conversation with Jesus about living water. Of course, what is Jesus telling her? Jesus is saying, I'm the living water. You take a drink of me and you'll have a flow, a spring flowing filled with the water of life that's in you and through you and it'll never run dry. It'll never run dry. And ultimately, this woman comes to conversion in Christ. She puts her faith in Jesus. And a whole lot of people from the city of Samaria, from the city of Sychar, the territory of Samaria, they too come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the midst of this conversation that she's having with Jesus, Jesus talks to her about something that is central. It is central to all of our lives. It is a crucial discipline a crucial habit of the Christian life. And that's the discipline or the habit of worship. Worship. Um, You realize that it's natural for a Christian to worship as much as it is for a person to breathe. For a Christian to live without worship is like a fish trying to live without water. It's like a bird trying to fly without wings. It's like a house trying to stand without a foundation. Worship is essential to everything we are and everything we do as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Worship is a core discipline. As a matter of fact, I would say to you that the other things that we will talk about over these coming weeks will be powerless and empty. They will become mere legalism in your life if you're trying to do them without worship. Worship is the source. It is the power. It is the fuel that drives everything else. Worship is the highest priority that you and I have to come before God and to give him worship. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but when we read from verse 20, to verse 24, the word worship was used 10 times in five verses. Sometimes it's translated as worship or worshipers or worshiping. It's all the same Greek word. It's all rooted in the same Greek word. 10 times he talks to this woman about the matter of worship. Why? Why I talk to her so much about worship? Because Jesus knows that one of the seven essential habits of a deeply spiritual Christian is that he or her, both men or women, are people who are committed to the matter of worshiping God with all of their hearts. So as we talk about worship this week and next week. I want you to go with me for a few minutes and I want us to think about this subject of worship. If it's such a vital part and has such a vital role to our faith and in our faith, we should be clear about what it means to worship. If the scripture says, as it does here, Jesus is seeking. He's not just calling. Jesus is seeking people to worship him then we should understand what he means, right? We should, we, we, should, we should want to know what does he mean when he says to worship him. What does it mean to worship him? So 
we begin today by talking, first of all, about the explanation of worship. And we want to do that with a definition. The Greek word here for worship is proskuneo, proskuneo. It literally means to kiss toward. Pros means to or toward. Kaneo means uh, to kiss. So you're kissing to or you're kissing toward someone. The ancient oriental mode of salutation between persons of equal ranks was to kiss each other on the lips. That helps you to take on, it helps uh, the passages in the New Testament where it says, uh, greet one another with a holy, takes on a new meaning, doesn't it? When the difference of rank was slight, they kissed each other on the cheek. We still see people do that. They kiss this side and then this side. They kissed each other on the cheek. But when one was much inferior, he fell on his knees, touched his, head to the fore, touched his forehead to the ground, prostrated himself, and in the process, he throws kisses at this person who is superior to him or to her. And that's what this word worship literally means. It's used in the ancient tradition of a person kissing the hand of a superior. Somebody who is greater than you are in rank in the world in which you live, bowing before them, reaching out to take their hand and to kiss their hand. And it was done with a sense of honor. It was done with respect. It was done with awe, it was done with reverence, and it was done in a sense of homage to the one who was greater than you are. This word is used in more common language to refer to a dog licking its master's hand. Uh, yesterday, I went and visited a lady who has cancer, and uh, she's in very serious condition, went to her home to visit her and her husband. They have a beautiful little dog, gorgeous little dog. Uh, I say a puppy, it's not really a puppy, it's a full-grown dog, but it's a small dog, so I refer to it as a puppy. And when I came in, the puppy began trying to get up on me, put his legs up on the front of my pants just to pay, for me to pay attention to, to that dog. And then when I got to the bedside, the, the dog jumped up onto the bed and the dog put its paws up here on my chest and the dog, the dog was, you know, was licking. He's, and, he's, and I looked at the dog and I said, now I love you, but I'm not going to kiss you. <laughs> You're as cute as you can be, but no kisses from this preacher today. But you can see the attitude of an individual who comes not licking the hand of someone else, but kissing the hand of someone else who recognizes something special about the person that you're giving homage to, that you're giving awe and respect to, so that you grab the hand and you kiss the hand or you fall on your face and while you're doing it, you're, you're throwing kisses at the one because the one who is receiving this is worthy of that kind of attention. Our English word worship comes from an old Anglo-Saxon word, and it refers to giving or showing someone their worth. Giving or showing someone their worth so that when it comes to God, it means that we state and affirm his supreme value and glory. We acknowledge that he is greater than we are, and that he is deserving of all of the worship that we can give to him. It means that we recognize his vast superiority and we humble ourselves before him and we give him 
glory. To everybody who's here today, is that why you've come? To everybody singing here, playing instruments, working in the media, out on the parking lot, down in the children's ministry, in the nurseries, standing in this pulpit? What is your purpose for being here today? It's not worship unless you're recognizing that God is the great one that you are serving here today and you're honoring and glorifying him and you've come for one purpose, not to impress anybody around you, but to bless the one who is your God. When it comes to the matter of worship, you can find all kinds of definitions that have been written. The mere fact that there are so many different definitions is evidence of how difficult it is to, to, to define the word so that it covers everything. When somebody starts defining the word worship, inevitably they're tweaking some little portion of it because in their own mind and in their own hearts, it helps them to understand the significance of the superiority of the one in whose presence you have come. But a couple of those definitions go like this. Worship is the overflow of a grateful heart under a sense of divine favor. It's recognizing that I am who I am and I have what I have because of the goodness and the greatness of God. And apart from that, nothing else. I'm not worthy of anything else. And I give to him all of the gratefulness of my heart for what he has done for me. Another is worship is the outpouring of a soul at rest in the presence of God. I just listened to that beautiful song by Miriam. Next time I'm troubled, I'm going to have her come sing that. Just to know, you don't have to be afraid, right? But the reality is that that's what worship is all about. It's coming into his presence. It's, it's the outpouring of our soul because we're at rest with God. We're at peace with God. And our soul just gets poured out to him over and over and over again. You are the great God of heaven. I can't even imagine that you even see me. But I'm thankful that you do. Another one that I particularly like says worship is the occupation of the heart, not with its needs or even with its blessings, but with God himself. Worship is the occupation of the heart with God himself. I, I came for one thing. You came for one thing today because of God, because God is here. He's amongst his people when they gather together for the worship of God on the Lord's day. I've come to show him that I know who he is and I've come to worship him and I sing to him and I pray to him and I bow before him and I love him and I talk with him and I fellowship with him and I treat others properly and I love others as I should love them because they belong to him and he is their father and he is greater than I am. I've told you the story on a number of occasions about Johnny Erickson Tata. I don't mean to bore you with her life story, but over the years of my life, it has been something that God has used a number of times to encourage me. She had a life-altering accident that made her a quadriplegic. In 1967, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay not knowing how deep the water was, and she ended up uh, being a quadriplegic. But in spite of her physical limitations, she became an accomplished author, 
a speaker, a radio host, an artist. She runs camps for people who have various physical challenges to to show them the love of Christ and to show them their lives matter. And she's made a huge impact on so many. In 1982, she married her husband, Ken. For her wedding, she had planned to come down the center aisle in her motorized wheelchair. And just before her grand entrance, she noticed two distressing problems. First, she had rolled over her wedding gown and made a big grease spot and tear in it. And you know how every bride is. She wants her dress to be perfect on the wedding day. And she was distressed by the fact that it was now torn and it was spotted by grease. Then the flowers that were in her lap had slipped and had lodged between her leg and the chair. And of course, she could do nothing to move that and put it back where it had been. And so she was filled with disappointment as she was facing the next few moments of her wedding and going down that aisle. Then she says, then suddenly the doors to the auditorium opened and she saw her soon-to-be husband standing at the altar waiting for her. Here was the man who was committing his love and his life to her. And Johnny later said, and I quote, Once I saw Ken's face, all I could think of was him. Everything else, the people in the church, the flowers that were sitting a little askew on my lap, the fact that my dress didn't fall right because I was sitting in a wheelchair, the grease marks, the rip in my gown, all of it paled in comparison. That's a love story that I'm telling you, but that's a pretty good example of how consumed we should be with God himself. When we truly see him, we immediately recognize that we are in his presence, the presence of the one that makes everything else in the world pale in comparison to him. Nothing else seems important when you see God rightly and you come to worship him properly. I believe, and this is my definition, that worship, simply put, is a conscious passion to glorify God in all things because he alone is deserving. A conscious passion, hear the words, conscious passion to glorify God in everything because he alone is deserving. You know, that gets worked out in a lot of practical ways. I'm so thankful for the way that we take care of our facilities and our grounds and our properties. Do you know why we do that? You say, well, you just got to keep them from falling apart. No, 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 no. You've missed the whole point. We do that because we are worshiping God. We're with a conscious passion wanting everything we do whether it's preaching a sermon or singing a song or praying in the pews or serving in some capacity or going back to our houses to love our families in every way, consciously with a passion from our hearts, we recognize that God is deserving of the best that we can possibly give him. That's how great our God is. To worship God is to recognize his worth or his worthiness. It is to look Godward and to acknowledge in all appropriate ways. It is to acknowledge in all appropriate ways the value of what we see. And therein is part of the problem. 
we really don't see God, do we? We see the entertainment. We hear the dramatization of the message. But we don't always see God. And the result is that our hearts aren't moved by his presence in our lives and we go away is very much like we were when we came in and very little change takes place and we just grade the performance without recognizing the presence of the God of heaven. When we see God for who he is, we can give him nothing less than our very best. And that should be demonstrated. It should be a recognition that's demonstrated by our actions. Please listen to me. By our actions, by our attitudes, and by our adoration. Did you get up this morning saying, oh man, I get to go gather with the people of God to worship God. It was, it, I wonder how long that service is going to last today. I've just got to get this done with and get on with it so I can check it off the box. I've done what I've got to do to salve my conscience so I can move on down the road and do something else that really matters more to me. The definition. It's a conscious passion to glorify God in all things because he alone is deserving. We bow the knee. recognizing in whose presence we've come. But secondly, I want to talk as we explain this matter of worship. I want to talk not only about the definition, I want to talk about the direction. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but I want you to go back and see it. In verse 21, at the end of the verse, he says, worship the Father. Worship the Father. In verse 23, will you notice it in the middle of the verse? Worship the Father. And at the end of the verse, worship him. In verse 24, will you see it again in the middle of the verse? Worship him. Two times he says, worship the Father. Two times he says, worship him, which is the equivalent of saying, worship the Father. In other words, the direction of our worship is supposed to be heavenward. You didn't come to worship me. I didn't come to worship you. We didn't come to worship the praise team or anybody serving or anything else that's going on anywhere. We came to worship one, and that one is God Almighty. We, come to, we came to see him and to acknowledge him and to glorify him and to praise him for who he is as well as for what, he's, what he does. Our worship is to be heavenward. We're not here worried about what everybody else thinks about us being here. The only person we're concerned about in our worship today is that God is pleased with the worship that we're giving to him. Do you, do you hear what Jesus says to this woman, this Samaritan woman? He said, she's, she's talking to him about worship. He's talking to her about worship. And she says, well, our fathers say we, work over here, we, we worship over here on Mount Gerizim. And, and your fathers say it's over there in Jerusalem. And Jesus says to her, you don't even know what you worship. You, you don't even know what you worship. You, you realize that there was at one point a temple on Mount Gerizim where they were supposedly carrying out worship. It was never sanctioned by God. It was never called for by God. It was always in disobedience to God. Where were they always supposed to go for worship? It was Jerusalem. It was to the Temple Mount. 
But they had built their own temple, and now they had decided that's where they were going to worship. And, and they worship things that we don't want to talk about today. Ultimately, that temple was torn down well before the time of Christ, but they kept going back to that same mountain. And Jesus says to this woman, I mean, you're talking about trying to win friends and influence people. Jesus says, y'all don't even know who you worship. You don't even know what you're worshiping. You're just going through motions. You're just going through actions that have no meaning whatsoever. You don't even know who it is that you're addressing when you worship. Our worship has to be focused and directed rightly to God above. This heavenward worship certainly includes Jesus who was speaking to the Samaritan woman. Did you see it? Please, did you see it? Please tell me you saw it. Please tell me you saw it when we read it. Jesus declares himself in this passage to be God. When she says to him, we've heard about the Messiah and that one day the Messiah is coming and he'll tell us everything. And what does Jesus say to her? What does Jesus say? I who speak to you am he. This is it. I'm the one that's the promised Messiah. All of the scriptures of the Old Testament are fulfilled in me. You know what he's declaring? He's declaring himself to be God, equal with the Father, a member of the, of the Trinity, of the Godhead. And where is our worship to be focused? It's all to be focused to God, exalting the Father and his Son and the Holy Spirit, exalting the one who is greater and above us, the one who is deserving of all worship. Something that you might find interesting, and I found it to be interesting, 37 times in the New King James Version, 37 times Jesus uses a phrase. Do you know what that phrase is? It's the phrase, my father. My father. You say, what does that mean, pastor? Just turn a page or two over in your Bible to John chapter 5 and look at verse 17. And you see one of the occasions when the phrase is used. John chapter 5, verse 17, but Jesus answered them, here it is, my father has been working until now and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father. Now, how did they understand that? Making himself equal with God. Now, look over at chapter 10, just a few more pages over. You see it happen again. He uses that phrase 37 times. He uses it in the Gospel of John, verse 29 of chapter 10. He says, my father, verse 29 of chapter 10, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. We love that verse, don't we? I and my father are one. Then... The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, many good works I've shown you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him saying, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. Who's deserving of our worship? The direction of our worship is heavenward. It is to God the Father. It is to God the Son. It is to God the Holy Spirit. It is to the Godhead above. 
That's the direction of our worship. And failure to worship the one true God has disastrous consequences. It has disastrous consequences. Just think for a moment about the history of Israel. Just take 1 Kings, 2 Kings, uh, 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles and all of the kings of the northern kingdom and all of the kings of the southern kingdom. There were no good kings in the northern kingdom and there were only a handful in the southern kingdom. But what happens to them over and over? They set up the high places. They have Asherah poles. They worship Baal. Remember Jezebel? They worship Baal, and they go through all of these pagan idols, and they worship all of these idols. And what happens every time they find themselves going into decline? Because they're not worshiping the one true God. When you turn your heart away, and you don't see God for who he is, and you don't kiss toward him, acknowledging that he is greater than you are and that he alone is worthy of the worship that you can give to him, that you take him by the hand and you kiss him and you say, Lord, you are deserving of the worship that I can give. When you don't do that, it is always destructive. It is always deadly. Listen to how the New Testament in Romans says it. Listen, listen to it. Don't turn there. Just listen to it. Beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they were without excuse. Do you realize that nobody in the world, no matter where they live in the world, is without excuse? When you look up and you see creation, not something that evolved over a period of millions and billions of years, but something that was spoken into existence by the power of the Almighty God, you can only come to one conclusion. The creation means there has to be a creator. But they rejected the creator. Verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not, here it is, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And here it is. And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And then he goes on, therefore God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them over to some of the most debased kind of living there is. You know why? Because they turned away from worshiping the one true God to worship their idols. There is no way up worshiping anything other than God himself. You might know the name Matt Redman. He was born in Watford, England, but in the late 1990s, I think about 1999, he wrote a song that we have sung here and still sung, I'm assuming, in a lot of different places. But you might not know how that song came about. He, as a young man, was a part of a worship team and a praise band that led the church every Sunday, going through the singing every single Sunday. But the pastor of the church knew that there was something missing from the worship. So he called Matt aside one day and he said, I want to ask you a question. When you come through the doors, this is the question. When you come through the doors on a Sunday, 
What are you bringing as your offering to God? Matt said that the question led initially to some embarrassing silence, but eventually it brought about heartfelt prayers and heart-driven songs were sung as they experienced God, he says, in a fresh way. And through the experience, Matt wrote this beloved worship song familiar to most. I'll not read all of the verses, but you'll be able to hear the melody in the background and you'll wonder, why doesn't he slow down for that word? Because it's supposed to be held out a little longer than that. When the music fades, all is stripped away and I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. King of endless worth, no one could express how much you deserve. Though I'm weak and poor, all I have is yours. Every single breath, I'll bring you more than a song. For a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. The story goes on that after a time, the band and the praise team were reintroduced to the church. They'd pulled them away for a while. They reintroduced them to the church. And he says that they demonstrated a renewed focus and intensity in their worship. He says the corporate time of singing songs, hear me, the corporate time of singing songs became, and these are, these are, key, these are hot button words these days. The corporate time of singing songs became authentic and moving. Authentic and moving. Do you get it? What is worship? It's a conscious passion to glorify God in all things because he alone is worthy. Worship from the heart is not necessarily about the newest and the greatest and the most played songs on the music charts. And for us old timers, neither is it about the oldest, most obscure and well-known songs. In fact, true worship is not about a song at all. It's about the sun. It's about a heavenward direction to our worship. It's about lifting up our souls and our lives and our praise and all that we are and saying, God, you deserve my best. And I might not be able to sing on pitch or on key, but I'm not singing to the people who are standing next to me or sitting next to me. I'm singing to you, to you above. Soren Kierkegaard got the idea. He was a theologian and a philosopher. This is what he said. People have the idea that the preacher is the actor on a stage and they are the critics, blaming and praising him. You know, sort of like as I'm delivering the message, you hold up a number. That's an eight. That's a four. 
People have the idea that the preacher is the actor on a stage and they are the critics blaming or praising him. What they don't know is that they, the congregation, are the actors on the stage. The preacher is merely the prompter standing in the wings, reminding them of their lost lines. And God is the audience. God is the audience. We're doing it because we love God with all of our hearts. I have a book in my library called Experiencing God in Worship. It's written by 10 different men. But it it expresses something. It came out in 2000, so it's 20 years old. But it expresses something that I think every pastor, every staff member struggles with. It says, in the heart of every pastor and worship leader is the desire to see people draw close to God, to truly experience his presence in their lives. Even though worship is so important, it is often a struggle to keep it from becoming routine. For many in the church, there is no deep experience involved or expected, and consequently, there is no life change. The big question is this, how can our church services better facilitate meaningful and life-changing experiences with God? It's a question that pastors and worship leaders struggle with every single week. To all of our staff, amen. We struggle with it every single week. In that same book, one of the chapters is written by George Barna. He says that the main reason millions of people in America go to church is not to worship God, but is instead to have a pleasing experience. He goes on to say that most Americans go to church to satisfy or please themselves, not to honor God, not to honor or please God. I want somebody to pat me on the back and say, that was a good job. I've been guilty of that at times. Probably you've been guilty of that for different reasons than preaching a sermon, because I don't think most of you want to preach a sermon. You understand that that's not the purpose of worship. It pleased me today, and I really felt good. Do you realize we have a whole generation of people that choose churches on the basis of the style of music? It doesn't matter what the preaching is. They do, they do music the way I like music to be done. <laughs> hey, it's not just music. It's not just preaching. It's not just serving. It's not just all of these things. It's one, or not just one of these things. It's all of these things together where we're all giving our very best to the one who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It goes on, the researchers discovered that the largest percentage of those who attend worship services claim that they do so for personal benefit and pleasure. God, what are you going to do for me? That's not worship. That's not worship. Worship is when we come and say, God, what can I do for you? God, how can I glorify you? You say, I'm not looking for a church like that. Well, there's a lot of other churches besides this one. This is the church that's all about God, all about Jesus, about the Son. It's not even about a song. It's about the Son because we're supposed to be coming and we're supposed to be worshiping. That's the explanation of worship. That's its definition. That's its direction. It's all about God. Lord, I see you. 
And I can't do anything but bow before you and kiss towards you because you are so awesome and so great and so magnificent and so wonderful. I have to do what the 24 elders in the book of Revelation did. I have to fall down before the resurrected one and take the crowns and crash them at his feet for he alone is worthy and deserving of praise and honor and glory and majesty. Nobody else is. Some things that will help you to recognize God in worship. Pray that God will open your hearts to hear him through his word. Don't just show up and say, let me get this over with. Say, God, speak to me today. Ponder the things Jesus has done for you through his sacrifice on the cross and resurrection. You might not have two nickels to rub together, but if you're a child of the living God, you have something that's eternal that can never be taken away from you. Praise Jesus for your salvation and for the freedom to worship when and where you choose. I don't know how long we're going to keep that. You better stop and say, Lord, thank you. Present your tithes and offerings in response to God's grace in your lives. I mean, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Plan to share what you've learned with others so that they can see how to follow Jesus. Don't keep it to yourself. Go out and tell others about it. Paul Eichelman might not be a name that you're familiar with. If you're familiar with Crew or you're familiar with what they used to be called Campus Crusade, you probably will know his name. Paul Eichelman served for 26 years as the director of the Jesus Film Project. Under his direction, the film was translated into more than 850 languages. The Jesus Film is where they take the life of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke and they dramatize it. And they take it all over the world. Translated into more than 850 languages. It's been seen by an estimated 5.6 billion people. 5.6 billion times. During that time, there's been more than 195 million people that indicated their decision to follow Christ after seeing the film. Paul Eichelman was talking one time about the Jesus film being shown at a refugee camp in Mozambique, Africa. He said most of those in attendance had never heard of Jesus, never heard anything about the Bible. They just fell in love with Jesus through the Jesus film. But when Jesus was arrested, he said, beaten and led away to be crucified, they began to weep and to wail and to rush to the screen. They created such a stir, such noise and such dust that they had to stop the film. He said, The sense of God's presence, his power, and his holiness was so great that no one could do anything but confess sins. Before I finish this story and finish this message, wouldn't that be great? If when we came to gather with the people of God or when we had our own private moments of worship with God, wouldn't it be awesome if his presence was so real and so powerful to us because we had come so prepared knowing that we were going to be in the presence of the one who was deserving of all of our worship that we saw him and we felt him and we experienced him and all we could do is say, oh God, forgive me. Forgive me where I failed you. Forgive me for my attitude. Forgive me for actions that are less than glorifying to you. Forgive me for the way I failed to love. Today's church is about a show. Who can put on the best show possible? Eichelman went on to say, finally things settled down and they could start the film again. Then they realized that the crucifixion wasn't the end of the story. Thank you, God. 
when the invitation, uh, it wasn't the end of the story. When Jesus was resurrected, the crowd exploded as if a dam had burst. Everyone began cheering and dancing and hugging one another and jumping up and down. When the invitation was given, more than 500 people, almost everybody in the crowd came forward. Now listen, the next day, that 40-member Mozambique refugee church had 500 new members who came to worship the Christ who would save them. Some of you, I can't even get back on Sunday night. They're hungry to worship Jesus any opportunity that's given to them.